0: Welcome to the World Bank EdTech Podcast. My name is Hallie Applebaum, and I'm part of the EdTech team. Today in our podcast episode, we'll be talking about whether virtual and XR laboratories are an option to give students in developing countries pedagogical experiences that are necessary for developing practical skills. So here joining me in this conversation today is Robert Dean, Associate Professor of Motion Arts Design and Virtual Augmented Reality at Namsul University in Korea, Jimmy Weinstein, Senior Program Manager leading the World Bank's program on interactive media with the focus on developing XR solutions for development. Marjorie Chinan, Education Specialist and Focal Point for AR, VR on the World Bank's EdTech team. And finally, Diego Angelodinola, Senior Economist and Global Lead for the World Bank's Skills Global Solutions Group and Manager of the Active Training Using Virtual Reality Program, Activar. So welcome everyone. So we know that providing hands-on experiences and proper and up-to-date content allows students to develop technical skills, but this remains a really critical challenge mainly in developing countries and rural areas. A solution that's been proposed is that when we can digitize these laboratories, which includes immersive and non-immersive VR, we're enabling learning experiences in a simulated or artificial environment and students get these personalized learning experiences. So before we dive into discussion, let's first clarify some concepts. Marjorie, can you help us understand how the World Bank defines virtual and XR laboratories?
1: Thank you, Hally, for the question. And of course, we use a taxonomy in, especially in the KP that is coming up that classifies these labs in three main groups. The first group are what we call labs that use more traditional technology like computer or a mobile device, but offers a three-dimensional or a 3D experience through a two-dimensional display, meaning a computer. This type of lab is particularly useful for situations where physical access to the lab is limited or for remote education. so during COVID, for instance. And in terms of learning, they tend to support the acquisition of knowledge and better understanding of content. The second type of labs are those labs that blend elements from both the physical virtual worlds and use technology referred as 3D or semi-immersive mixed reality. They are designed to appear realistic and users can interact with virtual objects that exist in this physical space. But since they are not fully immersive, users are partially aware of what's happening around them. And in terms of equipment, they generally require the use of 3D glasses and a specific type of software or device, for instance, a CS space. And finally, the third group of labs that we encounter are labs that use a technology that is called 3D Full Immersive. And as the name indicates, they offer a 3D Full Immersive and Interactive VR experience where the students can practice skills interact with virtual equipment, manipulate objects, and perform experience as they were in the physical lab. And in many cases, they can do this while receiving feedback and guidance. And this lab typically require the use of VR headsets, and both the second and the third type of lab are expected to support the development of cognitive, but also practical and technical skills.
0: That's really helpful. Let's go over to you, Diego. Why should policymakers and practitioners in developing countries consider using virtual and XR laboratories for training and workforce development? What advantages do they bring compared to traditional laboratories?
2: Thanks, Holly. About six years ago, before the World Bank engaged in virtual reality labs for training, I visited a couple of technical universities in Latin America. And let me tell you what I saw. The first one was a technical university in rural areas, and then I wanted to visit the welding department, and the first thing that struck me was the teacher. The teacher had a very big scar in his arm as a result of practicing welding several times, and he he got burned. Then I was telling him, look, uh, why why there are no students in the lab today? And he said, well, Mr. Diego, last week there was a transport uh, strike, and now we don't have any welding materials to be able to operate the lab. As a result, the labs are closed. Then after that, I visited a nursing college, a technical college also in Ecuador. And when I was looking at the students, I saw one of them trying to get blood out of a patient. It was a a nursing student and I realized how she was really having difficulties getting the vein of the patient. The arm started bruising and you could sense the discomfort, both of the patient and how nervous was this student nurse? So there has to be another way, an easier way for students to access these type of training experiences without the risks because they lack of materials or without hurting patients. So the value proposition of virtual and XR labs is first that you don't have to invest on in laboratories that require equipment, maintenance, inputs, and consumables. Instead of that. You can actually in the business of software development and you can expose students to practical training in a virtual world. The other is risk and safety. There are some situations such as welding or withdrawing blood from patients that are dangerous. So the idea is that VR and XR labs could develop practical experiences that are safer and you can actually learn these skills without pressure or danger. In traditional labs, you are limited to the lab time. And then you can repeat maybe a few times the exercise. Uh, If you have a a virtual lab, especially if the students have headsets, they can repeat the experience many times. They don't have that limitation. Also it's beneficial for, for teachers. Teachers in a virtual lab can digitally know how much a student spent working on the lab, if they completed the exercise or not. And all of that is recorded digitally. And last but not least is pedagogy. Basically, once you move from traditional labs to virtual labs, then the teacher becomes a facilitator of the learning experience. All of these value propositions make these labs very attractive.
0: That's fascinating. We've seen virtual and XR laboratories deployed by employers and many post-secondary institutions globally especially in developing countries. Robert, could you tell us about Namsol University's experience using virtual and XR laboratories for academic instruction?
3: Sure, thank you for having me. Namsol's program was created about 10 years ago. And at that time, there wasn't a big demand for VR apps for the classroom. So what we did at Namsol University is we used our campus as a laboratory. We collaborated with other departments to create VR applications for learning. So, for example, the nursing department or early childhood education department. I worked particularly close with the glass blowing department. The furnaces are very dangerous. And for years, we would train, say, one or two students to turn them on and turn them off and to actually operate or maintain clean and take care of the furnaces. But only having one or two students with the capacity to do that was a problem. So we worked with the faculty to create a training program, sort of virtual reality, non-immersive VR, to train students to use the equipment safely. So then after the students trained on this equipment for a bit, they were able to go into the laboratory and safely operate the equipment. And then after about four or five years of doing these sort of on-campus collaborations with other departments, we started to branch out to other institutions. One of the biggest projects that I worked on was with the Seoul Institute of Technology and Education. And this is a vocational school operated by the city of Seoul. They have many vocational programs in which average about four or five months, and there are licensing programs. So one of these programs was the tiling program, where students come to learn and to be trained to get their license to tile. And in this program for that school, they had the lowest passing rates. And one of the reasons that the passing rates were so low when students took the licensing examinations was that when they went in for the practical exam, they broke a lot of tiles. So in order to compensate for this, traditionally what they would do, was they would just provide more tiles for students to practice on. And this became very costly for the school to do. They couldn't provide enough tiles for the students to practice on. Also, this creates environmental issues. There was a lot of waste. And in addition, students were cutting so many tiles that we were always very concerned about the health issues of students with all the dust around. So they asked us if we would consider coming up with a solution in VR. And we came up with a a program in which we train students to cut tile using virtual reality. I think that although the school didn't have enough money to do an impact evaluation, anecdotally, We know that it's much more successful because the school has been able to cut down drastically on the costs of providing tiles for students to practice on. And then finally, I'd like to say that one thing that we at Seoul University recognize is that when new technology is introduced into the classroom, it doesn't really become fully integrated until teachers have more control over producing or, or modifying the content. And it's not practical to think that schools can always outsource VR production companies every time they want to create new applications. So last year, we started an online master's program to teach VR content creation. There's not that many programs available to teachers to study this in this field. And often they're not close to the schools in which teachers teach. So we're trying to provide this program to outreach to teachers so that they can learn to create their own content and fully integrate it into their teaching.
0: That's so interesting. Diego, are there any training institutions globally using VR and XR laboratories at scale?
2: Thanks, Hallie. That That's a really good question. The use of these laboratories at the scale is still nascent. So many universities are using it as part of their systems. But there is a group in the United States and Canada, it's called the International Training Institute. They are a network of about 150 training centers that have over 25,000 students that actually are using VR, using 3D in simulation technologies with headsets. And they have been able to train 14,000 apprentices on different fields such as air conditioning repair, plumbing, electricity, safety and installation of solar panels. And actually, they have very good uh, evidence showing that the students who train in VR have higher rates of passing in certification exams than in students who take the training in traditional laboratory. Now, I'm not aware of other such type of interventions at scale, but this one in the US and Canada seems very promising.
0: Thank you. Jimmy, are there lessons that we can learn from the private sector? Is it an early adopter of virtual and XR laboratories for workforce development?
4: In the private sector, they're always trying to find cost reductions, volumizing training. And of course, with VR or XR, you can actually create simulations that doesn't exist and avoid, like Diego said, putting people at risk. So with VR, you can actually create a living experience. You put this headset on and you can have a complete conversation with a customer. For example, if you're a big retail store, Or we've seen some airlines doing training about flying planes and security. So if you are in those situations, your brain interprets those signals as a living experience. That means that the learning is more profound and it really stays within. We've seen great examples. Walmart, the biggest retailer in the US, was actually doing in 2018, I remember, deploying VR headsets to every store. That was the idea, like 17,000 or so headsets. And employees would have Uh, customer service, simulation. But after that, we've seen lots of them. At the World Bank itself, we actually are trying to do a few internal staff training for diversity and inclusion and others. But this is just the beginning, right? So it's a very exciting sector. It's now all about spatial computing and starting to think in 3D, starting to think in mixed reality, in visualizations. And of course, for us, education is the centerpiece, and we really want to make it a success.
0: It's so interesting to think about. Marjorie, are there any initiatives in low- and middle-income countries promoting the use of virtual and XR laboratories for workforce development? Thank
1: you. Yes. For instance, in Rwanda Polytechnic, there is a lab that falls within the first group of labs that I described before, the 3D visualization in 2D screen that are using this technology to train students to maintain and repair engine systems on motor vehicles. Another example that we have is in India using a similar technology, but for the course of science and engineering. The interesting aspect of these labs is that they are designed by a consortium of 11 academic institutes and they are free to use for everyone. There is interesting from other countries in Africa, including Rwanda, to use more advanced technology, the semi-immersive technology that I mentioned before, for these virtual labs. And also countries like Seychelles are exploring the possibility of having semi-immersive virtual labs. Thank you. So with support
0: from a grant from the government of Korea, the World Bank is currently supporting the design and implementation an evaluation of virtual and XR laboratories through the ACTIVAR program, through the active training using virtual reality program. Diego, can you tell our listeners about the ACTIVAR program?
2: Yes, definitely. So the ACTIVAR program, as you mentioned, is supported by the government of Korea. The idea was to see if these technologies could be developed at scale in developing countries. This program started in 2018, and the first question we had is, should we invest on virtual laboratories? Do they work? And with the grant, we collected information about 90 or so experiments that used virtual laboratories for training, mainly in developing countries, and actually we found out that they do work. This meta-analysis led us to conclude that students who are exposed training in this type of laboratories are more efficient using inputs, time, and avoiding errors for every hour of instruction. And also, they display better results in tests, whether it's cognitive tests or whether it's getting a certification. So because of that, we said, okay, yes, this is worth investing on. So our second step was to launch these in developing countries. We picked up Ecuador and in Ecuador, we developed two virtual experiences from scratch. And I think all of the panel today have been involved at some point in this process. And the two uh, experiences we developed was one in auto mechanics to help the students develop practical skills to to assemble and disassemble a motor and also to understand how a motor works in a context where not every student has access to a motor to practice with. And the second virtual lab we developed from scratch was on prevention of industrial risks. In Ecuador, in the province of Santo Domingo, there's a kind of a booming industry, but there are more and more accidents in the factories. So we developed an experience that transported students into those factories. And based on the accidents that were more common in the region, we developed practical training so that they would know how to prevent these accidents in factories that looked like the ones they would work in when they would be out of their education. We really tried to evaluate these labs and and we found, for example, in the case of auto mechanics, that uh, students who were exposed to those labs, they have statistically significant learning gains we learned that they were very highly motivated and engaged with the learning process. We learned also about usability. Some of them said, look, well, we need some training to use this equipment, but after a while, after we are exposed with it, we feel comfortable and we would like to use it again. And the program was a, so promising that that the government of Korea supported the scale up of the program in the Caribbean. And now we're developing a virtual lab for fisheries in the Caribbean to transport the students into a fishing boat so that they can experience a fishing experience. So this is really exciting, and we are trying to really give it a global
3: scope.
0: Can you give us a visual of what it looks like for a student to be involved in the lab?
3: Sure. So the virtual reality component, which would be accessed more from the lab, would be the chance to practice what they've learned online. The issue that we're dealing with in the Caribbean is that fisheries are still very artisanal in St. Lucia and some of the other islands. So that means that fishermen go out in the morning and come back before noon usually, and they're unable to catch enough fish to supply the needs of the tourist industry or even their own domestic consumption. So they rely on a lot of imports from China and Taiwan. So working with the Ministry of Fisheries We are coming up with a plan to teach fishermen to use more professional commercial fishing vessels, but they need practice on these vessels before they can actually get the loans to purchase the vessels. So we're creating this VR simulation where students can go into the boat and practice what happens in adverse weather conditions. What do they do in case of an emergency? How do they navigate when they are being approached by a sailboat or by a cruise ship or or if there's a a fishing vessel to their right that is having mechanical difficulties what do they do so we put them in this virtual simulation and they can actually practice it and learn how to react in real time so we're talking about setting up a VR lab in the school the school's curriculum will be recruiting younger fishermen right now another problem in the region is that a lot of young people aren't going into the fishing industry because it's not a very attractive industry for them at the moment, especially since it's very hard work and you're working on these small boats and it's not very profitable. So the schools that we're working with, they would like to come up with a curriculum that would attract a younger demographic so that we can revitalize the fishing industry in these island nations. So these young entrepreneurs would come into the classroom they would first go to say a, a computer, and where they would learn about the content. This is coupled with tri- traditional instruction. We don't want to completely get rid of traditional instruction, but the they could actually practice as if they're on the boat. One thing you know, I would probably add here is that a lot of listeners might be thinking of say a class of thirty students all in headphones working alone. And and as an educator myself, I don't think this is always a very attractive option, I think that the idea of students sort of isolated in headphones sometimes can be not very pedagogically sound. So it may look like, say, one student immersed in the headset and what he is seeing is being projected on a TV screen or some other sort of monitor so that two or three other students can observe and maybe even give feedback to that student so that we're fostering communication we're fostering different types of learning using the headsets. So it's not an isolating experience.
0: Thank you. That, that helps me visualize it much better. So ActiveR has been closely implemented with the technical support of the World Bank Interactive Media Group and NAMSL University. Robert and Jimmy, can you tell us about your contributions to the program?
4: This is a long journey, right? So we're in production mode. And what really has to happen before is all this curriculum development. And that happened when we did the industrial risk course for Ecuador and the motor maintenance one as well. And then after that, you have to get into actual VR design because we can talk all we want about pedagogy, but at the end, somebody has to actually come in and create these experiences. And that's where the the nascent VR industry tools really help us out. And some of the partners like Be Ready Now and others that we've been working with allowed us to actually create a VR application. And for that, we have to convert a nice curriculum into a script and then the script into an actual 3D design so we can visualize if it's these boats or if it's this factory that we want to put students in and then make all the environments look real or at least close to real so we can interpret them properly. And then what happens exactly in these scenarios with good special effects and even sound cues in spatial sound so you can feel that you're fully immersed. So before all that that has to happen, we have to get approvals, we have to get buy-in from the teachers, which is very, very important so they can actually be part of the development. So it's very close to how they would actually teach these classes, even though something we also came in is that we we have to rethink the way we're teaching and we are not trying to replicate the way we've been teaching these classes in the past so we can get into the new realm, the new world of teaching and immersive learning. And then after the software is done, then we have to actually think about the hardware part of it, like Robert was saying in the classroom in the Caribbean. We're trying to have an experience where you put a headset on and then you have a monitor that others can see. But what are these headsets, right? So we need to buy the headsets and special computers that can handle them. We need to think about maintenance, right? So we don't want to just deploy a, a nice lab that we have all the money to put in and then leave these schools that are in developing countries to their own devotion. So we also think about support, and providing a company that can do remote support or even hopefully create local talent that can give them some opportunities as well. So it's a long journey, and we're still learning. I think every deployment has its limitations. Like Robert said, we're trying not to get away from traditional learning as well. So this is just the beginning. And I think if we do this podcast again, Hayley, in a, in a year, we can have a completely different conversation of all the learnings we had.
0: Thank you. That's great. I really like that you're focused on building sustainability around the program and empowering local talent. Marjorie and Diego, are there plans to scale up Activar and support other World Bank teams as they design, implement and evaluate virtual and XR laboratories for workforce development?
2: I think there's a lot of demand from task managers at the bank to know more and maybe consider the implementation of these type of laboratories in their projects. I would believe that Activar will remain active as a program. We are developing a knowledge pack so that we can at least provide technical assistance at the global level to teams who would like to consider this as a policy option. At the same time, we're having some conversations with the government of Korea who may want to support bringing Activar to a global level. And that would mean maybe giving more funding to develop new applications on the one hand, but also funding to support the implementation of maybe some off-the-shelf applications that are there in the market.
0: So, let's talk about the process of implementing virtual and XR laboratories, especially in developing country settings. Marjorie, you were involved with the implementation of six virtual laboratories in Ecuador. Could you walk us through the process?
1: Yes. So to implement this lab, perhaps the first questions that we need to ask is whether the laboratory is already available or not in the market. That's going to be very important because based on this answer, we're going to guide the activities in the implementation process. So if the answer is yes, perhaps there are many things that we need to to do, but let me organize them in four packets. The first one will be the selection of the software. So we want to make sure that it's aligned to the training courses of interest for the specific subject within that course and for the level of proficiency that we're aiming for the students. And it's very important to make a very good assessment here because the costs are non-trivial and we want to make sure that we bring a software that's going to add value. The second main aspect of implementation is the design of these physical laboratories, basically determine what are the minimum and technical specifications that are needed to ensure satisfactory implementation. And here I'm talking about aspects from internet connectivity to incorporating furniture to collaborative type of work, bring security, which is going to be particularly important in low-middle income countries, and of course, IT support to build around these labs a support that might provide maintenance and help teachers troubleshoot problems. The third is going to be procurement. These labs require procuring several aspects from software to license to equipment to furniture and technical support. So here our recommendation, and this is something that we describe in more detail in the knowledge pack that Diego was mentioning, is, is to bundle procurement in a service contract that not only provides the goods, like the software and the license, but also the technical assistance and provide support to the teachers through the process of implementation. And once you have everything set up in the lab, it's gonna be important to monitor the implementation of the lab. Based on the experience from Ecuador, we know that it's gonna be very important to integrate the use of the lab into the course curriculum. So teachers know exactly which week they're using the lab, for which content, for which specific course and if possible, to also incorporate in teacher lessons plans. These labs commonly involve a shift in the way we teach the classroom, moving more from a teacher center to a more student center where the teacher plays a different role, more of a role of a facilitator. So it's going to be very important to also provide extensive training, and this is one of the lessons from Ecuador study. The teachers going to require more training on the pedagogy. Of course, students need also guidance, classes where they can practice and they're going to need guidance and support in the form of manuals or in the form of training. And in the case when the lab is not in the market, the process, as you can imagine, is going to take much longer because that implies creating everything from scratch. So we need to identify what are the training competences that will be developed through these virtual labs. After that, we need to develop the competence-based curriculum. And ideally, this should be aligned with the national course curriculum for for better take-up, and use within the country. And of course, then develop the software that incorporate this competent-based curriculum. That's so helpful and interesting to hear those
0: details. Jimmy, your team recently did some scoping of available off-the-shelf virtual and XR laboratories that could be deployed in different countries. What did you find through this scoping exercise?
4: Yeah, it was very interesting to go out and, and do some research. You know, And this, by the way, you said team, and I say team with big caps because it's a very big team effort on what we have and, and the effort provided. So the, the challenge was to to create a kind of off-the-shelf tools on VR, AR, mixed reality, immersive tools that anybody could actually look into and then reach out to some of these companies, institutions, or check out at least what's available in the market. Because we're going to be talking about probably cost-effectiveness, and this is a huge thing that we don't have to develop a software from scratch necessarily to deploy a VR lab somewhere in the world. So if you can actually grab something that already exists, if you're maybe not too ambitious on trying to adapt it to exactly what you want to put in, and you can actually use what's out there, then you're going to be finding all kinds of things. We try to eat a little bit of different markets, one bite at a time. And we found a ton of things on auto mechanics where you can actually see all kinds of motors or maintenance for cars and equipment. And there's a lot out there that, allows you to visualize some of these in in VR or so with augmented reality glasses or even on just web experiences a lot a lot of it on the medical aspects on nursing and and which is a very important area and the in a sector that is growing tremendously for training and of course to avoid putting lives at risk when you can learn in VR and and then a lot in the in different areas on on construction and welding etc so it's a, actually pretty interesting exercise. I think it's never ending and all these companies evolve, new ones come in and and we hope we can continue to roll this out in the future.
0: Great. It's, It's a long journey and it sounds like you all have been doing incredible work. In this long journey, Robert, you have been personally involved in the development of new labs from scratch. Could you tell us about the process, especially entailing curricula and software development? How long can the process take? what type of team should be put in place to develop these apps and how much should it all cost?
3: Sure. That's a tough question because the cost can vary widely, you know, and I think the first variable is curriculum. Does the curriculum already exist? Are we creating a curriculum from scratch? Are we addressing a specific problem in one curriculum? So for example, with the Ecuador project, the technical schools in Ecuador all have the auto mechanics curriculum and the software we created about the engine was generic enough to be able to be integrated into an existing curriculum. Not that that was an easy process, as Marjorie can attest to. That took about a year of working very closely with, with five different institutes and figuring out how to integrate that into their curriculum. In the case of, say, the, the tiling program, that was addressing a very specific problem. And so we were able to go in and create this within about six months. For the Caribbean project, we're addressing a problem, but the curriculum itself doesn't exist. There are qualification standards for licensing boat captains, but the school that we're working with doesn't actually have the curriculum yet. So that we're doing a lot of work with a lot of different stakeholders. You know, the, the next thing we have to look at is the length of the course. How much of the course would be taught through VR. So if we take the fisheries example, there are certain aspects of it that we wouldn't incorporate into VR. So then you have to really evaluate how much of the curriculum would be taught using VR. And then as already been said by, by Bargery and Jimmy, we have to look at the equipment. There are a lot of different headsets and all the different kinds of headsets can vary from say about $400 per headset up to a few thousand dollars per headset. And Each of the headsets have pluses and minuses, so we have to consider the needs of the program and and how it's going to be used in that situation and what the budget is, of course. So, And then we have to think about the sophistication of the software. For example, do we need to create a database? If we have students working in these headsets, we we always try to incorporate some sort of assessment component so the students can, after they've completed their training, they can get some sort of feedback From the software, that's a much more sophisticated process. So all of these kind of factors go into, you know, how long it takes to create and how complicated the process is. So I would say it's a long answer to a very complex question, but the time for creating a virtual lab from scratch could take anywhere from, say, six months to a year to two or three years, depending on the complexity of the project
0: it's really helpful to hear about the nuts and bolts of building these laboratories. So finally, let's talk about the challenges, difficulties, caveats of implementing virtual and XR laboratories. Robert, are there any concerns regarding the effectiveness and usability of this technology?
3: Well, anytime we talk about initiating some sort of change in the classroom, the teacher is really the key to effective implementation. And quite often, teachers can be resistant to change. There are a number of reasons for this. You know, they're sort of set in their ways. They've they've, they've been teaching for, say, 15, 20 years, and they feel that their pedagogy has been successful, so why do they need to change? Another reason they might not feel comfortable with this new way of teaching is that quite often, when we went to Ecuador, for example, I noticed that a lot of the students had already had some experience using Oculus they had some experience using VR headsets, and they were much more technologically proficient than their teachers. So sometimes the teachers are intimidated by that, and they would sit back and let the students just use the technology without acting as the facilitator that they need to be. So these are issues that we really need to address to make sure that the teachers are fully on board and the teachers are you know involved in the process early on so that they can have a feeling of ownership. And then as Marjorie said, training is key. If you don't give them really good training on how to implement these new technology, the investment is is sort of in vain because they're not going to do it in a very effective way. The other thing that I would say is from a pedagogical perspective is that we need to really be conscious of things like cognitive load. What I mean by that is Sometimes on the production side, we get very enamored with this, the cool factor of v- virtual reality. We get into it and say, wow, you know, this is, this is real. This is cool. The realness or the, the experience. So we need to be very careful about how we're managing their experience in there. Because if we push and you're making this environment and the student's looking around and they're sort of distracted by too much sensory information to them at once, then they'll be distracting and the learning outcomes will be affected. We also have to think about how students interact with objects in a virtual world. Many of the students, as I said, in Ecuador, for example, many of the students have had experience in using these kind of VR headsets, but their experience is through gaming. So how they interact with objects in a gaming context may be related to how they react to Objects in an educational context, but it may be different as well. And to give you an example, one one common mechanism in a game would be the timer. And so, in it's it's exciting, sort of to to you know you the the player has a certain limited lifespan, and you have to complete a mission within a certain time frame, and the time runs out, and it's it's exciting and it's competitive. But if that timer is sort of trivially added to an educational application, it really doesn't have a lot of meaning. It may be fun for a moment, but it really doesn't have an impact on the learning outcome. If we ground that timer in some sort of practical meaning, in other words, for example, in the tiling context, we're dealing with most of the students in that program were in their 40s or 50s. So if we added a timer just to sort of give them a little bit of fun or motivation, they would just sort of get frustrated and it wouldn't have much effect on their learning outcomes. However, in the case of cutting tiles, if you cut a tile too fast, the tile breaks. If you cut it too slow, the tile breaks. So adding this timer in that context where we ground it in some sort of pedagogical meaning, it gives a sort of motivation that a sort of trivial timer wouldn't. So we really have to think about how students interact with the objects in the virtual world when we're creating these simulations. So those are a couple of the things that I think that are really important to think about as we as we talk about effectiveness.
0: And building off what you said, Diego, are virtual labs an adequate mechanism for instruction in all education
2: fields? Thanks, Holly. That's a good question. Based on the research we have conducted, virtual labs may not be the best option across all educational disciplines. While they can be highly beneficial, I would say that they could potentially, as Robert said, overwhelm students with excessive information and that can divert their attention from the essential aspects of the curriculum. And that happens a lot in experiments where they try to teach, for example, biology, using virtual lab vis-a-vis, you know, just a PowerPoint presentation. Sometimes when the students go to the virtual lab, they start looking around, they, they kind of get excited, but they don't focus on the essential. Now, there are cases where virtual labs have really opportunities, especially when it requires practical training, developing of modern skills, and also visualizing learning materials and experiences in three dimensions that are difficult to, to replicate. So it is crucial to deserve. I think educators must make a choice when these tools are, are cost-effective. I think there's a consensus that they promote engagement within students, but they may not be always conducive to higher learning.
0: Makes sense. Marjorie, what methods can be employed to access
1: and monitor the effectiveness of virtual labs? Great question, Holly. One of the things that I highly recommend is to first start small. Conduct a small pilot to identify implementation problems and challenge and things like that. As we mentioned before, there are different things that are going on in this lab, so things can go wrong. There could be any problems in technology that affect the whole pedagogy and the use of the lab. So it's very key to start small and start identifying what are these problems in the implementation. As we mentioned, there has to be an integration into the curriculum. There has to be training and the use of this technology in the classroom. So start small and collect this information to learn and improve. Or maybe there could be problems of connectivity or... We, we learned, for instance, that the students needed headsets and they were not distributed by the local the provider. And also, we recommended to do this in interactive mode or what we call an adaptive monitoring way, which means gather data in different ways from classroom observation using digital form. Many of these softwares allow you to incorporate a video that allows you to observe how the classroom is being delivered to, to semi-structured tools that collect monitoring data that ask teachers, how did you encounter any problems? How did you resolve it? How can we help you? What else can we do to improve? And then use that data to try to resolve the issues and see how these new adaptations works in the classroom. So we call it iterative because we, we did this in the, in the pilots that we're conducting, and that helped us tremendously to troubleshoot a lot of problems from the use of the technology to issues of implementation and things like that. The other aspect that we recommend is to, to conduct an impact evaluation. As we mentioned, these are non-trivial investments, and we really want to make sure that these investments are cost-effective and that support in learning of, and the acquisition of technical skills. So it's going to be very key to, to see how the, the users of these labs perform compared to a control group or a, or a business as usual group to see whether this, the investment is worthy. they are learning more, they are acquiring more technical skills. And in the knowledge pack that we recently prepared, we develop a theory change that can guide potential implementers on what are the aspects that they need to collect when implementing this virtual lab. One thing that we recommend, for instance, is to try to understand what are the mechanisms through which these labs can affect cognitive and technical skills or intermediate outcomes. We know through the literature, and Diego touched on these topics, that the literature mentioned that students can get more engaged, more motivated, more a sense of self-efficacy that can drive the results on learning outcomes. And in this KP, we're also including some of these tools that have been validated by the literature in different countries, and that we're also validating in Ecuador, and we're going to use in the other countries where we're implementing that can help you collect this information.
0: That sounds very exciting. And finally, Jimmy, are virtual labs affordable and cost-effective?
4: Well, that's a very relative question, I guess. But when you think about it, right, so in the example of the blue economy one, the institute can choose to buy a boat or do training in a virtual boat, right? So for some of the countries we're aiming at and communities, we allow for savings in the investments of large warehouses with equipment or having to invest or find the donors to provide some of the larger devices or labs that will require, you know, so it probably won't replace everything, but it's a it's an aid. At the end of the day, you do need an investment. You do need a, a bit of support institutionally, financially, if you can, and because you do need to buy hardware if you really want to do with headsets and equipment and computers, and you do need a space. And you need to make sure that that space is safe, it's clean, and it's not getting in the way of your lab. You do need to enroll, support and maintenance. And of course, you do need a software that even if you go off the shelf, you're going to have to invest in buying something. And if you're going to develop from scratch, then you have to go into the the whole investment of design, not even talking about the curriculum. So there there is an investment part for sure. And of course, there's time and I would say mental health <laughs> because it getting into this, it's a very interesting journey as we're learning through the challenges. And like we said before, it never ends and we continue to, to learn even after implementation.
0: Well, thank you all so much for this conversation. Before we wrap up, let's quickly go around and just share a few reflections. Jimmy, first over to you.
4: Thank you, Haldi. I would say that something we learned in all this is that even if we complete everything, software hardware, everything, the journey really starts after that. So it's not only that you put your equipment in and run, you have to make sure that these institutions are actually using it, how they're using it, fixing anything. It's It really takes time for adapting and learning. And we really learned that the hard way in, in some of these experiences where there's a lot of work that has to happen after the implementation or when the
3: implementation starts and I'm sure right after.
0: Thank you. Robert over to you
3: so I guess the biggest thing I've learned um, from these projects is the importance of the team from the beginning of the project to the end working with Diego on coming up with the concept for the projects working on the the curriculum then working with Jimmy's team on the production then working on Marjorie with implementation and impact evaluations and and all the other many 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 professionals that are involved in this very intricate process so Assembling a good team and having a congenial relationship and really trusting the professionals that you're working with is really key to creating a a good program.
2: Thank you, Diego. Thank you, Hallie. I, I would like to basically say that I think these labs are promising, are scalable. They are not easy to implement, but you can implement them well if you have patience. But I would say the the important thing is that doing this requires change. So it requires change in, in teachers, right? Teachers need to actually learn how to use these technologies and help how to debug them. It requires change in procurement, right? Now, institutes are very used to procuring consumables, procuring labs, but they are not used to procuring licenses. So we have to actually change that procurement strategy within institutions. Sometimes it requires changes in regulation because not every institute have capacity to invest on these new technologies or subsidies or, or grants so that they can incorporate them and pilot them would be really desirable. Last but not least, education. I think we need, especially in developing countries, to train more individuals to develop this content. We cannot become in developing countries only passive users of what is out there. We need to learn how to do them ourselves. And I think that's going to be an important component and hopefully universities and training institutions may build their own capacity to develop these applications for education.
1: Thank you, Marjorie. Thank you, Holly. Perhaps what I want to add is before scaling any of these labs, the importance, as I mentioned before, of piloting and learning from the teachers and the students that are experiencing this lab. We learn so much just by talking to the teachers using WhatsApp mechanisms, calling the teachers and understand what are the challenges, the issues that they are facing. So teachers are the center of of any education program. So it's very key to really build these mechanisms to learn from there as much as possible and adapt, right? That's why it's very important. We can with an idea to the country, but we're going to have to adapt to the local context, to their needs of the teachers and students. So coming with that mindset when we're implementing this program is going to be very key.
0: Thank you all for taking time to join us today. For our listeners, our team has been working on a knowledge pack, a short comprehensive guide on this topic. So check out our episode notes for the link to access that. Thank you all and have a great day.